welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar interview leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here are your hosts, Sean Ellis and Ethan Gar. In this week's episode of the Breakout Growth Podcast, Ethan Gar and I chat with Rajesh Jain, founder and managing director of NetCore Cloud, a full stack growth platform for marketers, product, and growth managers. Not many companies approach approach $100 million in ARR, and even fewer do it without raising any money. Rajesh and NetCore did both, and they may just be getting started. Ethan, what stood out for you in this conversation? Well, I think Rajesh really knows how to get out of the way. Um, We've chatted with some amazing founders, and for the most part, they've been the CEOs of their organization. But I'm always amazed when we hear about founders who've had enough self-awareness and humility, really, to step aside and let others lead. Rajesh understood that what he's good at, what he's passionate about. And there was this moment when he knew that to serve the company best and to give NetCore its best chance for breakout growth success, he was going to have to put someone else in the CEO spot and let them operationalize growth. Yeah. You know, it could be really hard for a founder to put their egos and pride aside. And for Rajesh, I think the risk increased because he was really successful early in his career. He sold his first company for $100 million in cash. And it's easy to let that kind of success make you think you're unstoppable. Fortunately, he did have the realization that his leadership alone was not going to allow NetCore to achieve its full potential. So, um, you know, it reminded me of our interview with Yaya, uh, oh, yeah. you know, the, the co-founder and chief revenue officer at Truebill. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. When Yaya started with the business, he was the CEO, but he stepped aside so that his brother Haroon could assume the CEO spot. And it was all about recognizing what was right for the business at the time. Yeah, that was a really great interview as well. And I think it's it's a lesson. This is a lesson for our listeners that goes beyond just the C-suite, whether it's recognizing that your sweet spot is early stage startups or realizing that you have particular strengths or weaknesses that make you better suited for one role versus another. I think it's just super important to you know occasionally just take a step back and try to, as dispassionately as possible, take stock of who you are and what you're good at and then adjust accordingly. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it was really interesting to talk about that, but that was just one of the many things that we discussed that were interesting. And, you know, Rajesh has has set himself up as a thought leader for his organization and for the larger world of growth. And he's provided some really great tips to latch on to, you know, from, from learning, uh, you know, a couple of things that really stood out, like one, uh, learning what he called the customer vocabulary. Uh, I thought that was, that was super cool. And then, Another thing that's super important, probably for all startups, um, not making a, not allowing you to have a habit of of making losses in the business. Yeah, uh, you know that's uh, it's it's natural for a startup in the beginning to have those losses, but because he's self funded, they 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 built that discipline in early. So um, there was just a lot of things that contributed to a, a thoughtful discussion. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this one. And I think it's been neat, like the last few weeks and months, we've been bouncing around with all these different personalities, you know, some type A leaders, um, and then people like Rajesh, who they just sort of bring us a, a calm thoughtfulness to their approach to growth. And I think it, it helps our audience, it helps you and I really get, you know, this broad picture of the inner workings of how growth works across the spectrum. Yeah. And um, there there isn't one right way to approach this. And, and hopefully uh, we're, we're helping all of you out there to find inspiration for your journey. So should we get to it, Ethan? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, Rajesh, uh, welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Thank you very much, Sean. Glad to be on your program. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So I'm joined with, uh, by my co-host, Ethan Gar. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Sean. Hey, Rajesh. Good to see both of you. Hi, Ethan. We're recording this on Memorial Day here. <laughs> and uh, of course, Ethan and I, uh, we, we scheduled it without, without even recognizing what day of the week was. But fortunately, uh, I don't think either of us had any big trips planned. So this <laughs> well, is, uh, it just lets our audience know just how committed we are to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I'm I'm sure that we've got uh, some listeners who are familiar with NetCore, but there's probably a lot of listeners who aren't. Um, 
So uh, in India, I understand that you have 75% market share, and uh, but still, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily explain what Netcore Cloud is. So can you give us a, a quick explanation of what it is? Yeah, Sean. So uh, Netcore, like you said, has 75% market share in email in India, and that's one of the things that we do. So Netcore can best be described as a company which is a B2C SaaS company, uh, essentially a, a, a B2B SaaS company for B2C companies. We help companies with their communications, engagement, uh, product experience uh, solutions for building better relationships with their customers. So for the US audience, I think the best way to describe us is we are a little bit of Twilio where we do SMS and email. Um, uh, we are also a bit of brace because we do the marketing automation piece. And then we are a few more things because we also do personalization. Uh, we also do product experience, which is nudges uh, to help uh, uh, brands basically uh, help uh, their customers uh, on the contextual walkthroughs and so on. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about why we have to do so many things in India later on. I'm sure we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So, um, and then what, what about the markets that you serve? Where are, is, it, is it mostly India or have you spread beyond India? So uh, we are in India and many of the emerging markets, uh, they account for the bulk of our revenues. So Southeast Asia, Middle East, Africa. And over the last couple of years, we've been expanding in US uh, and Europe. And those are the two areas, two uh, geos really, where we see a lot of future growth coming. Yeah. And then am I correct uh, in, an, I heard a number that you're doing more than a hundred million dollars in ARR. Is that a, is that an accurate number? Oh yes. Uh, we are close to hundred million uh, as of March uh, this year. Okay. Excellent. We've built it organically through the years uh, with a few acquisitions, but uh, uh, we've basically, we are what I call a proficon, you know, profitable, private, uh, bootstrapped and uh, highly valuable. Uh, so it's one of those rare companies which you find in the space. Uh, but uh, yeah, 100 million is uh, where we are. Well, fantastic. That's got to be exciting as a founder from uh, from kind of the, the early days when it's just a, an idea germinating to uh, to be able to see those kinds of numbers is super impressive. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's been a wonderful journey. Yeah, I know you. Um, yes. I read you, uh, you founded the company over 25 years ago, I think. So uh, at the time, Sean and I were we were just cutting our teeth at Uproar.com at the early uh, early side of the dot com uh, boom. Can you tell us a little bit about the backstory, how the how Netcore Cloud came into existence, and uh, just where you know how you the progression from there to here today? Sure. So uh, I'll start the story a little before Netcore. Um, while you were cutting your teeth at Uproar, I was doing uh, portals uh, directed at the US audience, uh, um, a company which I call, which was India World. So we were India's first internet portals. I'd launched that in 95. After multiple failures uh, upon my return from the US after doing my master's at Columbia to become an entrepreneur in India. And uh, I'd launched India World in uh, early 1995, just around the time Yahoo and eBay had launched. So we're the first from India. We grew to be the largest. Uh, we are very small as a company. We were 20 people. Uh, my wife and I essentially uh, ran the business. And uh, we were about a million dollars in revenue. When in November 99, I got an offer to which I could not say no to. We got an acquisition offer for over $100 million, uh, predominantly all cash. So those were good, the heavy days. Of, <laughs> oh, I think uh, awesome timing as, yeah. as my investment banker uh, 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 Merrill Lynch, their, their founder and CEO, uh, DSP Merrill Lynch in India said, more important uh, than knowing when to enter a business is knowing when to exit a business. I'm thinking that was an easy decision. <laughs> no, it wasn't for my both my wife and me. We had sort of built the business over five years uh, and uh, almost, you know, it's you get very attached to it. Uh, we'd spent most of our time just working through uh, and uh, but at the, at, at a as Hemendra Kothari, you know, from DSP Merrill Lynch explained to me, said, Rajesh, look, this is an offer you will not get again. Uh, uh, you'll have the freedom then to do whatever you want in life. You are a creator. You, you, you can come up with new ideas, go out and build new businesses. And uh, uh, sort of that few conversations with him persuaded me to accept the offer. Uh, and uh, around that time is when Netcore was born. 
around 98, just, just before I had sold. Uh, because India world was all portals. Uh, we were doing a little bit of Linux-based servers for enterprises in India. That was the early version of Netcore. And for the first 10 years, we did not grow at all. Uh, um, I mean, we were like uh, doing probably about $200,000 in, uh, in revenue. Uh, I tried a lot of things. I built probably the world's first blog search engine. Uh, I built a thin client, thick server solution for countries like India, where you could bring down computing costs. Uh, I built an RSS IMAP aggregator, you know, when the heady days of RSS and blogs uh, were growing. Uh, but I couldn't sell any of those. That was my problem. <laughs> uh, and then in 2007, I decided I was really the bottleneck in the growth of the company. I then professionalized the management. I got in a CEO. I got a CEO. And I said, look, I can build things, but I can't sell it. Help me build this out. And that's what they've done. The last 15 years have been a very good growth for us. Wow. So did you do you think it was... Um... You think it was simply a matter of being able to kind of position and sell it, or was it uh, was it that they helped to tweak the offering to make sure that the the offering was right for the for the market, or a combination? A combination of combination of both, okay. uh, Sean. I think uh, we we did some pivots because the the, the Linux based mail server market was just too small in India, uh, but because of some of the experiments that we were we kept doing, we uh, latched on to enterprise uh, uh, services uh, in India, enterprise software. And then that's that's when the offering kind of came together. And like, what did you, what did it start to look like when you actually yeah. knew that you, that you had something people actually wanted? Right. So the first offering that we came up with was uh, enterprise SMS services. Uh, so essentially uh, what we did was uh, uh, mobile was growing in India. Uh, enterprises wanted to interact with their customer base. Uh, so we launched SMS services. Shortly after that, given our expertise in email, we came up with email services. So brands were collecting uh, email, email IDs and they came to us and said, look, uh, you know how to do email very well. And uh, what we want you to do is basically help us send out mass mails to our customers, a bulk mailing, what we called at that time. And that uh, those two became our uh, initial offerings. And uh, they have both stayed till now. They are very, very profitable businesses, business lines for us. And uh, so that was around 2008-9. And in 2015, uh, we uh, added on the MarTech automation uh, uh, suite. Uh, so we realized that we were at the bottom layer of the, of the services, the communications layer. And it was the early days of MarTech that we needed to do uh, much more. We needed to get into journeys, uh, 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 journey orchestration. Uh, customers were asking us for automation. And by just listening to them, we just kept adding on uh, newer and newer services uh, as we went along. And and uh, sorry, one more question. <laughs> I know Ethan's chomping at the bit to, to get in there. Um, did you, uh, so, so essentially, yeah, that's a lot of time between 1998 and, and 2008. Um, do you think that uh, that your staying power was was uh, largely a, a part of being able to have that earlier exit that uh, that maybe allowed you to be more patient? And how did you how did you know it was we're not you know what, balancing between we're being patient and waiting to get this market right versus this is just a hobby business and. I made my exit and now I'm just uh, <laughs> just going to have fun the rest of my life and not make any money. Like, how, how did you balance between the two of those? Yeah, great, 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 great question, Sean. So I've always been a person who loves new ideas. Uh, when, I, when I try to come up with the ideas, I don't worry too much about, uh, uh, about how it will sell or how I, uh, how, what's the potential for it. I just love new ideas. And I think... Uh, while I think the products were good, we were probably way ahead of our time. And as happens, you need, you need you need to get the timing right. Too early and you fail, too late and you're going to deal with dozens of competitors. So I think in those days, we were a small team. Uh, uh, so the burn was not very high. Uh, we had some, some cash flows coming in from our uh, Linux mail server business. But I, I wanted to build a bigger business. At that time, I was not very ambitious. 
Uh, my previous company was 20 people. I said, you know, it would be good to run a company of 100 people. What does that look like? Because the only place I'd worked at was in the US 9X for two years, which was 10,000 10, people or something that big. So, uh, so in entrepreneurship, I said, okay, uh, I'd, I'd love to create a larger business out of it. But I had no idea how to do it. I had no idea how to uh, manage uh, more than a small number of people. <laughs> uh, and that's when a friend of mine said, Rajesh, look, you need to, you need to get in a CEO. CEO. You're good at certain things, but there are lots of things you're not good at. And I think that's probably the best uh, advice I got. And uh, I'm glad I heeded it. And uh, that really, so since then, Netcore has always been professionally run in the sense that I've always had CEOs. Um, I'm not very good at managing a lot of people. So I only have to now manage one person. And I love that. So that gives me a lot of chunky time to think, to read, uh, to travel, to meet with people, and so on. So in that role, now that you have professional management in place, do you do you have, you, you, you mentioned learning from your customers, understanding their needs. Um, are you part of that? Are you part of the engagement with those customers, even at the level that you're at? Or, and how do you do that? Yeah, so that's what I love, talking to customers. Uh, I think in the, uh, in the first 18 odd months of the pandemic, I must have spoken to about 150 plus CMOs uh, with a few ideas that I had. You, know, you could do Zoom calls, uh, so you could do a lot of conversations. And I think the key is to essentially understand the vocabulary. So rather than just me talking, what I like to listen to is the words that they are using to describe uh, some of the pain points that they have. Uh, and there are two places typically you get this. You get this in uh, direct conversations that you can do. And second is at conferences. You know, when you're going out, and I love attending conferences in the US where you know, for two or three days, you're totally immersed in a different world. You're not distracted by what's going on in the company. You're not distracted by emails or uh, sort of WhatsApp messages that you're getting. Uh, and then you're able to connect the dots. You know, when you sit 15, 20 hours listening to uh, different people speak, that's when things start falling in place. The mental models start forming. And that's the part which I, which I love a lot. And that's what I did in the previous three weeks, you know, meeting with a lot of customers, uh, listening to them. Uh, I, I also talk about some of my theories, you know, what my view, worldview is. Uh, and then I look at what, how they react. What are the words that they sort of uh, uh, reflect back uh, to me? Uh, what are the phrases that they use to describe their problems? And I think if you listen in that sense, I think automatically the product ideas, the positioning ideas start coming through quite well. Yeah, it's, it's amazing um, that... I think so many people look at conferences and, and look at it purely from the view of how many leads, how much time and money was the ROI there. And, and for me, by far, what you what you've said is, uh, you know, being able to immerse yourself in, in customers and I the number of times where I've spent. You know, two or three days, totally, you know, hours and hours, and then then going out at night and having drinks and dinner, and then back on the next day, and you're exhausted by the end. But just somehow the pieces start falling together, and you you start to realize, okay, this is where the business is, and and I I don't hear that talked about enough. So it's it's really cool to hear you mention that because I think that's the by far the biggest value that that a conference has to offer. And it's not the same thing just listening to, you know, a lot of YouTube videos uh, or, or, or uh, uh, even podcasts because the connections happen when you're, what you like, the word you used, immersion. I think that's what a conference really does. You know, those eight hours, nine hours when you're just absolutely there, stuck in one place uh, with no distractions and uh, just listening to the words sort of come by and then how the, how the mental models start to form in place, how the brain makes the connections. And I think that's that's the best place for ideas. Yeah, and I think uh, we really felt that during the pandemic because the remote conferences they were valuable to to an extent, but I think now that we're coming back to in person conferences and events, um, I think it's that you know there's that glue that that you can't get unless you're with people having those chats. Like, and, and as Sean said, it's it, sometimes it's not it's not in the talk itself. It's, you know, in the conversation before, after, uh, it's those little moments, but I just wanted to, uh, to ask you, um, 
when you come back from conferences or talking back, talking to customers, I think you're, I think I read that your company is close to a thousand people. Now you can con- confirm that, but how do you, what's your me- method for evangelizing those learnings back into the organization in meaningful ways? Okay. So a uh, great question. So uh, I just returned last week from the U S three conferences and, uh, uh, now that so I, I I do two things. Uh, I, I write a daily blog. Uh, so I wrote a series over the weekend on a tale of three conferences, and I send that to about twenty of the top people, my core team internally, uh, putting together all the learnings from the conferences uh, which were there, which I attended, uh, and I'm going to of course put that out on the blog also, so then a wider audience uh, gets access uh, to it also. And I'm quite open with my ideas because I always believe that um, if, if you share your ideas, if you sort of open source your ideas, you get a lot of feedback from other people. Uh, the second thing is that uh, what I also tend to do is uh, uh, select a few phrases you know, from some of these conferences, which I then try and distill down repeatedly in one-to-one conversations, uh, uh, in chats with in, in smaller groups of people that look, these are the themes which are there. This is what tomorrow's world looks like because what conferences are doing is giving you a glimpse of the future in some ways. So uh, like one of the conferences I attended was on, on, the, on, on, on blockchain, essentially, uh, uh, permissionless uh, in Palm Beach. It was a new area for me. Uh, but the sense I had going in was that crypto and Web3 are, are going to be very important. And at the conference, uh, I felt the same energy which I used to see in 1995 to 1997, attending the uh, internet conferences in the early days. So you have the extreme believers and you also have the disbelievers. And uh, uh, the believers are really the ones creating the new worlds, imagining tomorrow what tomorrow is, is uh, looks like. I mean, as an entrepreneur, really what you're doing is selling a vision of tomorrow because that's really the only thing you have along with your passion. And uh, uh, that's what I try and do internally is to tell people that, look, this is what what the future looks like. And we've got to uh, make some investments in building out, uh, creating some initiatives, creating some experiments in building out uh, uh, a few, creating a few projects which can help us build out uh, some ideas for tomorrow's world. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to I take it back to something you said earlier um, about when you brought in when you brought in the the CEO and and uh, that was kind of when the when the pieces started to come together, um, what what specifically did that CEO do differently from from how you had been approaching things? When and, and why do you think those things made the difference? So, I think uh, Abhijit Saxena, who was our first CEO, was very different from me. So I was the sort of tinkerer, creator, uh, thinker. Abhijit was the a pure business guy. He came in saying, Rajesh, we need to create a discipline on sales. We need to set up processes. We need to create weekly sales reviews. We never had that. So my approach was to meet with people and say, okay, you sold so much last week. Okay, you must have done your best efforts. Thank you. Very good. And Abhijit said, nothing like, nothing doing. We need to set targets. We need to hold people accountable. We need to set up processes. Uh, uh, we need to be meeting uh, meeting customers a lot more to understand what do they want rather than you sitting and deciding what is the thing that they should be having. So he he brought in this whole uh, sort of a complementary skill sets to me, uh, which I think made all the difference in laying the sort of first foundations uh, for Netcore. Uh, he was complemented by a CEO who brought in the operational discipline. So we had no project management. I mean, Think about it. The largest team that I had run earlier was 20 people. Um, And that too, I was traveling half the time. So uh, my wife, she used to manage uh, the other 18 people. Um, (laughs) uh, So uh, I was not very good at delegating. I was sort of forced to delegate because I I had to travel. So with Abhijit coming in, I think we brought a discipline. Uh, We had forward-looking numbers that we would start thinking about. Okay, this is what we need to do. Uh, Salespeople were held accountable. And the product teams were held uh, accountable for the product that they would create. Uh, we started listening more to market feedback on what customers wanted rather than just, just creating things and taking them out to market. So I think that was the real start of building a proper business. You know, I think earlier, mm-hmm. like you said, it was probably more of a hobby. Just try <laughs> out new ideas. I had plenty of money. 
So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try out things. Sometimes too much money can can give you too much patience. <laughs> Go ahead, Ethan. I, I was going to say, um, really about uh, my question is really about timing. Then um, it sounds like you know that was a slow process before you decided to bring in that professional team, as you as you described. With the benefit of hindsight, when is the right time for companies to think about bringing in? I mean, I, I, I'm guessing that would not have worked on day one, but it worked on you know ten years later. Now that you look back, when was when is the right time for companies to do that? I think it's important for the founder to understand one's uh, his or her limitations, um, and I think the mistake I made, Ethan, was that because I was successful once. I thought I had the Midas touch. I thought that whatever I would do would basically just sell itself. Um, uh, in India world, I, I came up with a set of ideas, you know, portals which Indians globally loved. It was a B2C business uh, primarily. Uh, we also used to do websites for Indian companies. And I was early. Um, so I had the advantage uh, of basically being the first, the pioneer. Uh, but then I, I think the right time is really when uh, you realize that what you're doing is not taking the business forward. Okay, so uh, in hindsight, when I look back, we stagnated for too long. We probably lost four or five years because uh, I think of my sort of, uh, of hubris, uh, you know, uh, that uh, I thought I could do no wrong. I was very successful, even though I'd failed earlier in my, uh, uh, in my uh, ventures before India World. But I thought after India World, I could do no wrong. And now when I look back at my life of 30 years as an entrepreneur, I've probably got two successes and 30 plus failures. Um, uh, um, it's easy to sort of look back and reflect. But uh, at that time, I really thought I, 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 I could not fail. I think that that was probably my, my mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think that that goes back to that phrase of why why it makes sense, but fail fast. Like I I used to hear that, and I, I found that so annoying. But if you uh, if you think about it in the in the sense of how you're saying it, if you fail fast, you can have thirty failures and two successes, and your career can be dominated by the successes because you succeed over a long period of t- time. And and if your if your failures are recognized as failures. And you move on to the next one fast enough, then you get the learning from them, and uh, and again, you want to be able to put your time into the into the things that have that potential and 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 ride those things. Yeah, in fact, just actually, uh, what you said, just I want to go go back and address uh, uh, Ethan's question. I think because this is important advice for entrepreneurs also is that when do you bring in uh, sort of the the professionals in the business? And I think for entrepreneurs, it's one of two things. Either you're very good at the product, okay? And in which case, most entrepreneurs will not be very good at the go-to market and the selling. So I think that's a good time to start looking for people who are skilled. You, you can get the early successes, but you know, building a scale business is not going to be easy. The second is that if you are good at sales, you'd have, you then want to get someone who's very good on the product side very early on. You need a team. Okay, you can't do it yourself. Um, so I think it's the combination of the two. You know, product, of course, the what we talk, the, the product market fit is very important, but the product has to come first. Uh, and most entrepreneurs tend to be good on the product side uh, because that's what really drives them. That's the kick uh, that they get, you know, creating new things. And I think the realization has to dawn that if the if if they are having some challenges getting revenues from the product then they need to bring in experts who can basically take what they have to market. Yeah, it's funny. I I'm, I'm think I'm exactly the opposite of you in that sense where um, my earlier successes led me to, to have the overconfidence that, uh, you know, I, I should be the founder. I should, I should come up with a product idea. But it turns out I'm just not very good at kind of conceiving of the initial product. And, uh, and so I kind of... I, I look at it as uh, just because you know I've I've driven a lot of success, so I wanted to be a founder who could who could create things and 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 build successful companies. But that's just that's just not what my strength is. My strength is is 
seeing small amounts of success and quickly building on those and turning them into, into, into big, exciting things. But I think it's that recognition, the, you know, the commonality between both of us is the recognition of, of what am I good at? What am I passionate about? And how do I complement myself with the other skill sets? And, and that's why, why teams build successful companies and not just individuals. I just wanted to add one more thing. I think one learning that I had, uh, uh, when I when I brought in my CEO was that I have to trust him completely. Okay, I have to trust his judgment because a company should have only one leader. Because if I was going to be around as the founder, uh, I could not undermine him in meetings publicly. So even if I disagreed with him, I should have the conversation privately. Because otherwise, once there are two power centers, then people will play one against the other and that's a sure shot uh, sort of uh, road to, to Yeah, to you failure. see that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. Uh, so you, you've never taken outside capital as far as I know, right? For, in terms of running, building this business. Do you, do you think that, well, two questions. One is, was that always because simply because you had the capital or simply because the markets never lined up? That's one part of my question. Then the second part is, how has that impacted your decision-making? And do you think it's always been a good thing? Yeah, great question. So, uh, in both my companies, India World and Netcore, I have I did not take capital. So, in a sense, both are proficons. <laughs> um, now, uh, I have tried probably twenty five to thirty times in my life to raise capital. So, um, uh, it's it's not out of my choosing uh, that I I did not uh, manage to raise capital. I think when I look back, my problem has been that. Uh, uh, when I go into meetings with uh, with potential investors, I tell them the valuation expectation right up front. Okay, so, uh, and if I don't, if they decline to invest, I increase it for the next person. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I can do that because I'm running a profitable business. See, that's the prerequisite. Mm. Uh, uh, I was running a profit- profitable business uh, very early on in India world. Um, because we used to do website development for companies and that kept the cash flows coming in before the ad started kicking in once we had built up enough traction. And uh, I think what I've found is that conversations with VCs and uh, more recently PEs have been a great help in building Netcore because you're dealing with some of the smartest people on the other side who are telling you in about an hour or two everything that's wrong with your business. So what I would do is after those conversations, I'd say, okay, so these are the problems. Now I've got to go fix them. So it was like free consulting, uh, 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 which happened. I mean, you got very smart guys, right? I mean, they're looking at your sure. numbers in a way, which is very different from the way you're doing it. They're telling you really what's why they, why you should not be worth what you are asking for. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah. So to answer your first question, Ethan, I think I've always tried. Even now we keep trying. Uh, but I have the confidence that I will not compromise on my valuation because uh, I am profitable. I can afford to, uh, and it's not outrageous expectations. It's it's fair market valuation uh, most of the time, uh, which I ask, which I've asked for in my in my thirty years as an entrepreneur. Now, how has that changed uh, the approach to to running a business? Uh, and I think this is advice that I got from my father very early on. Uh, so when I came back, he he has he was also an entrepreneur, uh, but he never built largish businesses. He was a single person, and uh, 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 in in India of seventies and eighties and nineties, which was a very different world at that time. Um, but he gave me one piece of advice. He said, "Look, the one thing you should never do in life is to take on debt." Okay, um, so uh, for me, the sort of venture capital always seemed a little bit like debt. You know that you're, you have someone else whose 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 money you're you're building on, and he said if you don't take outside money, okay, you you'll never lose sleep. Uh, um, uh, it's essentially you know whatever you do, it's it's your destiny, it's your money which is there. He said don't lose someone else's money, and sort of these couple of things always stayed with me. Um, so I was extra cautious when having the conversations, and. When I was building the business, I had really no choice but to make it profitable because there was no other source of capital. I had, I could not 
sort of burn cash on on many things that venture funded companies did i had to think much harder about uh, the choices that i made about products uh, and so on uh, which would actually make money in the near term and there was once uh, in my life about 15 years ago when i got sort of trapped by this whole valuation uh, uh, thing and i started burning a lot of cash uh in my company of course i had the money at that time this was 2007 8 time frame uh and then my wife uh, uh uh sort of uh one day um she had taken a break for a few years we've always worked together for most of our 30 years she had taken a break because a baby was born in 2005 so she had taken 3 years off and then she comes into the company and she sees us sort of uh, she's a she's a cpa she's a finance person but she can do everything in the company any anything pretty much she's the hr head now in netcore um and she comes and looks at looks at it and says you are losing so much of money every month and i said look you know but this is all going to grow our valuation and look we got good valuation previous time he said absolute nonsense you have 6 months to turn the company around and make it profitable otherwise shut it down this is no way to run a business and uh by that time you know after 10 15 years of uh, marriage you realize uh, there's a very high cost to not listening to your spouse um <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and i i said okay 6 months is a little tough but give me 9 to 12 months and i'll turn it around uh, and we did and after that mm-hmm. uh, netcore has been absolutely profitable for the last 15 years we've not lost money at all and that that and sounds like the, the timing that led to the ceo as well yes absolutely <laughs> and and what happens is that just as loss making is a habit becomes a habit of sorts you know because it's very difficult to turn things around making profits becomes a habit you know and and it puts you in a very strong position when you're talking to potential investors you are not dependent on on outside people i'll, I'll tell you a small story about 3 years ago when we were talking to uh, uh pe funds when we wanted to raise some capital for netcore uh, uh i was not able to do it because most of them said that look we don't want to invest in a profitable company we want you to cut the profits out and focus purely on growth we'll give you the money to grow even faster and i said no i will not do that because if for some reason something goes wrong tomorrow it will be very difficult for me to stop the losses which are there and now i mean you're seeing a new world emerge uh, uh, in front of us where profitability is is the mantra and uh, uh, uh essentially i think my core philosophy has always been that you know a, a business has to be profitable there is no no two ways about it you can maybe take some initial capital for for building it but when i see businesses for who have not been profitable for 10 years 15 years still investing still calling themselves startups after 10 15 years and not making money that makes absolutely no sense mhm of course amazon pulled it off they they went a long time without a profit and everyone thought they were crazy and then they became a super valuable company but that's the, that's the exception yeah exactly yeah 10000 companies sing their amazon and none of them are it, right. it is it is funny how markets dictate the value of profitability uh shawn and i actually probably both remember a conversation where we went to an executive team and we asked this what we thought was a very reasonable question which is can somebody tell us the path to profitability and the eyes looked at us like we were crazy i i think <laughs> who the hell are you 20 something kids get the hell out of my office with sort of the ceo's yeah. response and and we we left there like with our tails between our legs thinking isn't that what we're here for like to make money and and it was just like it was so far from what the company was trying to do at the time um and i've been part of of other companies that have been acquired and i thought our profit our profitability would be like this great weapon and it was sort of like okay well you're profitable i'm not sure that's so exciting for us um and i you know so i think it's interesting that um maybe to a degree your own profit profitability has made it uh, has interfered with any ability to raise money fortunately that hasn't that same profitability has given you a lot of freedom to do the things you've wanted to do and i know you've mentioned a couple of acquisitions has that um uh i mean obviously when you're when you're pulling that the 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 money to make acquisitions out of your own funds um that's a there's probably a lot more thought that goes into that process um how do you approach acquisitions and and looking at those as the potential to be valuable to the company 
So I've always believed that acquisitions are going to be very important in the MarTech space uh, because there's no one company which can do everything. Uh, and there was a, 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 a very successful Indian business person I'd met about seven or eight years ago. And I'd asked him, I said, you know, he was running a very large company, very successful. And I, I said, so what is, what is it that you have learned which has helped you build such a big company over a number of years? And he said, acquisitions. Acquisitions done at the right time for the right price. And he said, the best company in this space is a US company called Danaher. Uh, uh, it's in the chemicals additives business. And I said, look at the HBS uh, case studies on them. And uh, you'll see how how they approach uh, how they approach acquisitions. And uh, since then, I've really always believed that you know for Netcore to um, to be what Jim Collins calls an enduring great company, a built to last company, acquisitions would be a very critical path uh, for us. Uh, so we we did a couple of uh, tuck in tech acquisitions a few uh, over the last uh, three years. And most recently, two months ago, we made a very big bet. Uh, we invested uh, close to $100 million uh, in buying a company Unboxed. That was about $10 million uh, in uh, ARR, uh, serving US customers. And uh, it's a very complementary business to where we are. What I realized is that for us to uh, build a footprint in the US, organically, it would take us a very long time. Uh, so acquisitions, um, uh, which brought us access to US customers, uh, was very important. We also wanted a product that we could cross-sell, uh, a complementary product, which we could then take to our customers back in uh, India and other emerging markets. And Unboxed with its presence in search and recommendations, so on-site search, you know, the way you see great search results on Amazon, uh, they help other B2C brands deliver fantastic results. And uh, uh, their tech uh, actually becomes a very complementary product when we go out and sell to the email, the marketing automation, and uh, journey orchestration, uh, other components that we have. And uh, 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 that's when we decided that that would be the right acquisition for us. Uh, it's a very big and bold bet because like you said, Ethan, uh, all the money is our own money, uh, which we are investing uh, into this. And uh, then we have to work hard to, to make it work, uh, to get the two companies uh, uh, to work together. Um, and my belief is that this is th th there's going to be a lot more that we will do. Consolidation, uh, I think, is going to be part of the MarTech space because customers are going to demand it. They don't want to work with 5, 10, 15 uh, uh, companies. They want to work with fewer companies. They want to work with integrated tech stacks to get a unified view of their customers. And uh, for that, I think uh, brands uh, like B2C companies, like uh, B2B companies like us in the MarTech space will have to look at uh, either building organically the full stack, which is very hard, or look at acquisitions to be able to offer fuller solutions to the end customers. So, so Rajesh, I, I wanted to to kind of bring together sort of the strengths that I that I see from from you and and founders in general, and uh, from a great operating CEO, and 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 try to kind of get a picture of how how it fits together. So, in my view, I think. Uh, a founder tends to be able to really articulate a vision well and and kind of get people excited about you know they're they're just visionary they get they get they tap into the emotions of of day-to-day -day execution but when you look at the uh at the the strengths that you bring and your CEO how do you how do you manage between kind of the uh very hit numbers automate you know all all the uh kind of predictability side with with context and vision and uh, and and reconcile b between those. So uh, Kalpit, who's our current CEO, he's our third CEO. Um, he's he's very focused on execution. So he's uh, been with uh, Netcore right from day one, and he's done an amazing. Uh, he knows every part of the business. Uh, very focused on the very people's person. Very good on the on on getting things done on the operational side, getting things done. Uh, and my strength really is uh, uh, in, in trying to uh, think about what are the next turns which are going to be there. So I have the luxury of chunky time um, uh, to, to spend time reading, talking to a lot of customers, thinking. 
And I think this combination uh, works very well. It's probably not easy in today's time for a CEO to do both those things easily. Uh, because, uh, of course, you can have a very good CEO, which frees up the CEO. Same, same basic idea. Mm-hmm. Sure. How do you actually bring like context and meaning to the team so they're not just a kind of a, a piece in a machine, but they, they, they get that kind of uh, value from their day-to-day work and, and, and passion that goes into actually believing in the big, big picture? So I think it's very important to have a sort of shared um, vocabulary, um, to have uh, uh, you know words which can describe what you want to do, uh, uh, to have a culture that basically also gives freedom to people at the, at the senior levels, uh, at the top levels to essentially execute. One of the things which I did about uh, um, a year ago, a year and a half ago, was I, I did an internal course. I, I conducted an internal course using all of Jim Collins's writings. So over seven weeks, uh, uh, we read all of his books and discussed it for an hour and a half every two weeks. And I think it was an incredible experience because what it did was gave us gave us a view of what a built to last companies look like. Um, uh, and uh, uh, this and I've always talked thought about this idea of an enduring great company. You know, to borrow again Jim Collins's language. But more important, it gave us the the vocabulary to talk in meetings together. You know, the genius uh, of the and versus the tyranny of the or, the flywheel, uh, uh, the 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 brutal truth or facing the brutal facts, the 20-mile march, like I described Netcode's journey. And suddenly for a lot of people, what, what worked was that what I, I used to articulate many of these concepts, but I was not using the same words. You know, I was, I was using a different vocabulary. Uh, and that helped brought us, to, brought, us uh, brought the team together saying, okay, uh, this is what sort of Rajesh has been talking about. Uh, it's good to see this articulated by you know, others that you can actually, you don't have to build a company to sell. Uh, uh, you can build a company to last. You can make decisions which are on a longer time frame, And that helps. Uh, we, we have to balance our quarterly numbers. Uh, even though we are private, I try and ensure that uh, uh, versus, uh, versus keeping the long-term view in mind. So it's not just about this or that. You can actually manage, for example, profitability and growth. It's not one or the other. So I think there are great, there are very good books which really help you um, uh, bring these ideas together. And sometimes I think getting everyone together, discussing some of these things together, I think make makes a big difference. So, Rajesh, uh, we always like to ask one final question. And um, that is, what do you feel you understand about growth now that maybe you didn't understand as well a couple of years ago? So I think it's, it's two things. One is that many times we are called upon to make sort of binary choices that you can be this or that. Okay, that uh, like, for example, you can either be profitable or you can drive growth. Um, uh, you can either build or or sort of buy, uh, or you have to buy. So a lot of these uh, sort of false binaries, which many times we are we are asked to choose, and I've I've come to the conclusion that actually it's possible to do both the things at the same time. Okay, it, it, it's a harder path, uh, but I think it's it's the chapter uh, in Jim Collins's book, you know, the genius of the and versus the tyranny of the or which sort of brought it alive for me. That's, that's one of the things which I've learned about growth, uh, that you can actually create a model which combines, for example, uh, 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 meeting short-term numbers with laying the foundation uh, for, for, the, for, for, a, for a longer term. For example, the McKinsey's model of three horizons. You, know, you build, for, build the cash flows today, um, uh, then use uh, build growth businesses, which will be cash flow generators tomorrow, and the third horizon where you're experimenting uh, with uh, with new businesses for the future. The second one is that I used to think that uh, um, having a monopoly, uh, sort of you know seventy five percent market share in India, uh, was was a great thing. And what sort of struck me a few months ago is that a monopoly is not equal to a moat. Okay, so they are two different things, um, and. I have to think much harder if I have to convert that monopoly 
into a a a, a defensible or an impregnable moat um so just because we have 75% market share uh, in india uh, in email today does not mean that that will be there forever uh, uh and and uh, i sort of had, used to take that for granted that will become very hard for someone uh to basically challenge us and i don't think that's that's necessarily the case there are so we have always got to keep ahead of the curve for example in email uh it's an industry where uh there has been very little innovation uh because most of the companies basically get to a certain scale and then they get bought uh so like the three largest email companies were bought have been bought in the last couple 2 3 years by cpass players which are basically voice and sms players so most innovation has stopped and i said look if we have to build this monopoly and moat uh, uh we have to continuously innovate because it's not just a question of what's happening in email email is competing with other channels like you know sms like whatsapp like push notifications in the push messaging uh, space um so we've got to continuously keep innovating we've got to keep thinking harder on how do we build those moats uh, and that's really where the long term value creation happens all the great companies uh, have 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 uh, very deep moats and that's sort of the next challenge for me as to how do we take the good position that we have if netcore's got to grow, go from 100 million to a billion dollars i think we have to build these moats That's great. So one one uh question you you referenced Jim Collins a few times. Uh do you have a favorite book from Jim Collins? Oh, absolutely. The last book which he wrote Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0. Okay. Uh, it's not as well known. I think people uh-huh. know of Yeah, I have not read great. that one. I think uh that book uh, came out about uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, uh it's sort of a partly rewriting of his first book that he had written uh, uh with a co-author Uh, but i i love that book because it basically brings together all of his ideas in a single book and it's essentially the book which he says is for entrepreneurs who want to just build their businesses and keep growing them forever uh, what he calls the enduring great company and in uh, i think one of the chapters i think chapter 6 he's got this thing called the map uh, which gets all of his ideas together in a single graphic and i think that's that's very powerful and that's the book i would recommend to all entrepreneurs Uh, that is, that is the next book I'll be reading for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love Good to Great. Um, some of his other books haven't haven't uh, like sort of uh, resonated with me as much as Good to Great was just like game changing yeah. for me. Yeah, but um, I'm I'm excited to read this one. It sounds sounds like a good one. Um, well, we could we could keep talking forever here, but. Uh, we uh we better wrap it up but i i appreciate so much you sharing the journey and and these incredibly insightful lessons that you've learned along the way so so thank you so much for our time and for everyone tuning in thanks for tuning in thanks everyone thank you sean thank you ethan thanks for listening to the breakout growth podcast please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week. <laughs>